Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. begin reading from chapter 5, verse 1, through verse 10. This is God's holy word. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you that you have given us these warnings. Father, we acknowledge that you indeed are good. Father, that Satan makes all kinds of accusations against you, that you desire to rob us of any pleasure in life, that you desire that our lives will be filled uh, with sadness and grief and pain. But Father, this is not the truth at all. Father, you desire that we would have pleasure, our greatest pleasure in you, that you've given us earthly pleasures too, but you've put us, you put up fences to protect us from the many pitfalls. And Father, we pray that we would heed your word, that we would trust in you, that you indeed are good and holy, that you desire holiness in your people. Father, we pray acknowledging that we are weak, that we are in need of your warnings. Grant us the humility to receive them. And Father, we pray if any are here who acknowledge their sin, that you would do a mighty work, that you would remind us of the hope that we have in the gospel, that you graciously receive sinners, that you command us to repent, to forsake our sins, and that we find true forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your provision for us. We pray that the good news of the gospel would go forward. We pray that our Lord Jesus would be high and lifted up, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. There was once a time when uh, there would be traveling salespeople and they knock on your door and they'd be perfect strangers and you let them into your home and they'd sit down in your living room and you'd pour them coffee or tea and then they'd give their sales pitch. And now many things have changed. We walk through neighborhoods that there's no soliciting signs. We have such a sign and we still get solicitors. They'll knock on the door and uh, in kind of a way as I can, I ask him, uh, yes, sir, how can I help you? And he says, hey, I, I'm, I'm here, I'm trying to sell this, or hey, I, I'm um, uh, t- talking about this and this, a candidate. And then I'll, I'll look down at the signs, hey, did you, did you see this no soliciting sign, sir? And he says, oh, yeah, but 
And then they come up with all kinds of reasons for why, no, my cause is so important. Or, you know, hey, I saw it, I just simply didn't care. And, and, and here, you kind of wonder, wait, hey, wait, wait a minute. They, they all see it, that's for sure. And here, I, I wonder sometimes, if we think about God in the same way, he's, he's given us commandments, he's given us warnings. And in our own prideful tendency, we somehow think in the same manner as that solicitor, that that word simply does not apply to me. It applies to everyone else in this world but me. I deserve exceptions. I've had a particularly difficult life. So whatever rules that God you've given me, they don't apply to me. Do any of you think that? Let me tell you, if you're thinking that, you are in a very dangerous position. Because we ought to have the humility to say, God, when you give us warnings, let your servant be listening. That we, your children, should be humble enough to say, we need to hear these warnings. They apply to me. There is danger involved here. And God is saying, there is fire. And if you want to play with fire, you're going to get burned. No one is exempt from his rules. No one is exempt from his judgment. Here, we think about this book of Ephesians. You think even about the context you look at this letter and how, how uniformly positive this letter is. That the Apostle Paul is writing to a people. We, we have some idea of them because in the book of Acts, there's an account of Paul's visit to Ephesus. That this city, like many of these ancient cities, were filled with idol worship. And with idol worship comes evil things. Idolatry is tied to sexual immorality. When you have... The, the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana present there. And you would think that these first generation Christians who gave up the worship of idols, the worship of Diana, who was the fertility goddess, you can imagine where that, what that would do. That the apostle Paul is not shy in pointing out, hey, listen, here are these warnings, in particular for you who have left this. You cannot go back. There cannot be, I will take the best of the previous life and combine it with the best of the new life in Jesus. No, there is no such combination. He gives these warnings sternly, carefully, pastorally. And you notice here that it's uniformly positive. He speaks about our Lord Jesus Christ and his beloved bride who is the church. And so also, this word goes to you. All of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ that you would heed these warnings, that you would trust that our God is good, that when he gives us warnings, we should listen to them. They apply it to you. They apply it to me. So we see in this passage, Ephesians 5, 3 to 6, sexual immorality is incompatible with your new life in Christ. So forsake it and pursue a life of purity. Sexual immorality is incompatible with your new life in Christ. So forsake it and pursue a life of purity. We'll look at this in two points. The first is the sin of immorality in verses 3 and 4. And then God's warnings for the immoral in verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> so the first point, the sin of immorality in verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Here, as, as we begin this, it's very easy to think that uh, we 
we in the church, that we either should do one of two opposites, or, or we, should, we should actually avoid one of two opposites. One is we never talk about this subject at all, and that our people will, will fall into all kinds of a trouble. Or we keep talking about it in ways that are not edifying. And my prayer is that this would be that razor's edge in the middle, where we talk about it with the frequency in which it comes up in God's word. This is part of the, the blessing of having this, uh, this expository preaching, where we're not avoiding the subject, we're not constantly going to the subject, it comes up in God's word, and we address it. Here, also there's a tendency to think, if someone says, hey, I'm 100 years old, this, this word doesn't apply to me anymore. Well, the answer is, God has given it to us, and it applies to us. We ought to heed it. That perhaps one can say, it's particularly true for young people, but it's no less true for those who are older and advanced in years. Here we have in Ephesians 5, the beginning of Ephesians 5, you have the positive command to walk in love, to be imitators of God as dearly loved children, as recipients of Christ's love and of his selfless sacrifice for unworthy sinners. That is true love. There are Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. This is true love. As dearly loved children, we ought to imitate God. He loved us, so you ought to love. As Jesus laid down his life, this was true love. And we're told, walk in that love. That we ought to emulate him. That we ought to live a life of self-sacrifice. But here in today's passage, <clears throat> Paul addresses the matter of counterfeit love. So the world seems to put together hand in hand, lust and love, and, and tries to masquerade one as the other. But that's far from true. Idolatry is closely tied to immorality, and that lust is more coupled with hate than it is with love. We think about the historic and cultural context for Ephesus in this letter, that there was, well, this was a site of gross immorality. The city of Ephesus housed the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Apparently, that this temple was, was quite elaborate, but there were uh, sinful things that went on in the worship of these false gods. That the true and the living God, who is holy and just, worshiping him involves holiness. And that you have these false gods and with it, the worship of them, there would be immorality involved. Who you believe God to be is what you will practice. Here, this warning that the Apostle Paul gives, that our God gives, this warning and this call for purity was needed 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. But it is also needed no less today in our context. And it, it was needed between Ephesus 2,000 years ago and today here in the United States. And it will be needed by every people group until Jesus returns. What we can see, at least, is how urgently we need it here in our society. There, was, there must always be a contrast between the world and those who are in Christ, in his church. There must be a contrast. Here, you think about this contrast. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 20. The Apostle Paul, 
speaks about Gentiles. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But then he says, but that is not the way that you have learned Christ. Meaning, for those who were in Ephesus, who were worshiping in those temples, he's saying that this is not the way you learn Christ. There was new life for you. There was a difference. There was a change. There was a giving up. You know what? I'm giving up that life because the Lord Jesus has called me to a far better life. He's called me to a life of purity. None of my neighbors, none of my old friends understand it. They all mock me. But how else would it be? How else would it be? You think about this practice of immorality. Notice in verses 3 and 4. He, he gives these groups of three. He gives these groups of three. The first word there for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's the same root word that we get pornography from. And there's a close tie there. Some older versions uh, translate sexual immorality as fornication. But it's, it's actually much broader than that. Here, when we think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments address categories of sins. The Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is not a, a limit just to the act of adultery. So adultery is when a, um, a married person or, or a person is involved in sexual relations with a married person, someone not married to that person. And that's a very narrow category. But understand that with the Ten Commandments, it, it selects one, and we ought to understand that God has far broader categories in mind. And we look at the Old Testament case laws, and it gives us some idea what God in mind, had in mind regarding the Seventh Commandment. So there's laws against prostitution. There's laws against rape. There's laws against wife swapping. There's laws against homosexuality. There's laws against incest, bestiality, polygamy. So you see here, the seventh commandment and this term sexual immorality refers to that entire category of these sins. Here, Jesus, as the divine lawgiver, explains the true meaning of the seventh commandment. Here, Jesus, who you think about Moses, Mo Moses... Moses was not the giver of the law. He was, he was merely the hands that, that carried the tablets. Jesus is the giver of the law. And since Jesus is the giver, Jesus is God, he is the giver of the law, he is also the perfect interpreter of the law. So then when his people, the Jews, after however many thousands of years, have misunderstood and misapplied it, then he comes at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is, this is Jesus when he says, but I say to you, this is God speaking. And he's saying, it's not the letter. It's the spirit of the law. Even that desire is sinful. And he's saying, that's the heart of the commandment, the desire. Holiness and wickedness are both manifested in thought, word, and deed. And if that's true, 
Now, that means we must have every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Not just, not just every word and every deed, but every thought captive. And we think also about impurity. That's the second word. Sexual morality and all impurity. This is the resulting effect that it has on the life or the soul of a sinner. In Proverbs, the question is asked, Proverbs 6, 27 and 28, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is, the answer to both of them is, it is impossible. There will be scars from having a hot coal or walking on, on fire. And so also, that there is an effect of sin, of immorality. There will be an effect. One, one cannot say, like the snake, that I will just slough off that hour later of skin, and then it's all gone. You think also about the warnings, the polluting effect that it has on society. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 29. Do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. See here, God is concerned. He's concerned about the people first and foremost, but I think the land is probably referring to the the people themselves, that the society will fall into wickedness. Perhaps you can imagine that may be what our society is like now. You, you look at, you look at the, the, the field of marketing and advertisements. What is the primary method that they use to sell anything these days? You look at uh, Wilfred Brimley. You remember Wilfred Brimley? This, this, I don't even know if he's still alive, but he was selling um, Quaker oatmeal, right? I mean, you think about him. Who's going to buy oatmeal with Wilfred Brimley? But apparently they did because they kept using him. But you think about the creative ways people can come up with and and says a lot about the sorry state of our society. We have also the third mention, sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness. Generally, we think about covetousness <coughs> describing greed regarding wealth and material goods. So money and materialism, uh, the heart of that covetousness is an insatiable desire for more. One car is not enough. Two cars, and then ten cars, and then twenty cars. Whatever you can think about, whatever whatever material desires there are. But here, specifically, seems as if this covetousness is applied to to sexual immorality, and the the matter is is very much the same. The desire for more that sexual sins refer referring to the insatiable desire for more and uh, transgressing any and all boundaries that God has set up. And the warning that we have, even here, is that you cannot obtain infinite pleasure from finite beings or objects. This is not fitting. You, you have uh, a finite person. And can you derive infinite satisfaction from that person? The answer is no. All of that points to the very truth that the only place we can find that, that infinite satisfaction is in our God because he is infinite. That all of this satisfaction and desire, pleasure points to back to God himself. That no, 
If you marry someone, you follow these rules, you can't get infinite satisfaction. In fact, if you try to derive infinite satisfaction from another person or thing, then the end result is whatever uh, finite satisfaction you can obtain will be lost. Here, we have the contrast to this covetousness, this no barrier mentality. The contrast is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is self-control. We read earlier, our elder read earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4, <clears throat> for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So there is here the instruction, you who know God, you who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, there must be the fruit of the spirit of self-control that says there must, be, there must be limitations, there must be barriers, there must be offense. Self-control is then needed for holiness and for honor. Here, this is a warning to parents. You cannot expect to teach self-control suddenly to a teenager on the topic of sexual desire. It must have been taught. The self-control principle must have been taught earlier. From infancy, from, from being a toddler, there must have been taught self-control. That you can't suddenly try to take this 12-year-old, 15-year-old and say, hey, you need to have self-control. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Self-control and immediate gratification are exact opposites. If you trained up your children with immediate gratification, and when they turn, become teenagers, they have these desires, immediate gratification will be what they're looking for. Here in verse 3, the Apostle Paul says that these three mentions, sexual morality, all impurity, and covet or covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Not even named among you. Here is the expectation that God's people, followers of Jesus Christ, cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus Christ. That if there is a commitment to Christ, there must be a willingness to put to death all the things of the past. There are certain warnings given, 1 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul says that you must not have fellowship with a so-called brother who is immoral, an idolater, a drunkard, a swindler. He's not saying it's only this category of sins. He mentions several of them, but one of those is the immoral. Now you have a brother who says, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, and at the same time, I engage in sexual morality. He's saying, hey, listen, we, we cannot have fellowship with those people. There must be some kind of uh, hey, we're, when we get together, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a non-Christian here. We're, we're, we are not fellowshipping as brothers. Here, he continues by speaking about immoral speech in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which about our place. Here we have to remember that the principle that Jesus gives from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. How do you know what someone's thinking about? It comes out in their speech. And 
At times, you're in various circles where you don't have a whole lot of choices. The people you work with, the people you live around. You can't just conveniently pack up and move. You can't just quit your job. I suppose you could ask for a transfer if it's that bad. But here, you think about the people who say certain things. They have different values, different standards. And for, for you first, you ought to understand your words, the, the words that you choose to use actually influence you. If they come out of your mouth, uh, the, the faster you stop them, if you think about them, sinful things, stop it. If it comes out of your mouth, it has a tendency to influence you, and, and then those words also influence other people. Here, the Apostle Paul is not saying that all humor is sinful. No, I don't think he's saying that at all. He's saying what we choose to laugh about, what we have humor about, says a lot about us. Laughter is in many ways helpful. It's, it's a blessing to be around people who have good, healthy, happy humor. He's not saying all humor is bad. Here, you think about the sinful, the filthy words, and, and maybe I could describe them in two categories. One is the type of speech in which someone speaks to try to initiate action. So in the workplace, they might make some kind of comment, off-handed comment to you, and in that situation, it cannot go unchallenged. Right? You cannot go unchallenged. You, you think even, even in the secular workplace, there are laws against harassment, and how much more so that in the church, as Christians, our standard must be that much higher. So the first type is solicitation to sinful activity. That must not be done. It must be challenged. The other is the type of speech that drags others down. Perhaps people do it intentionally. Perhaps it's unintentional. But the bottom line is we must be those who raise the bar, not lower it. The word here says in the end of verse 4, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Have you ever realized that giving praise to God and giving thanks to him how entirely countercultural that is. It's entirely countercultural. No, no one, no one seems to want to do that. They have a lot of complaints. People like to complain. People like to speak about how bad their situation is. And you realize how quickly the conversation could be changed if you and I are those who speak the truth in love, who who praise the Lord, give thanksgiving. A simple, simple conversation, for example, on a Monday, Monday morning, people are dragging their feet, coming in, oh, oh, how was your weekend? That simple, oh, boy, my weekend was great. I had fellowship with God's people. Uh, we heard the word, and, um, you know, we spent time in prayer. First, they might think you're a lunatic, but you know what? Hey, at least this is, this is heading the conversation in the right direction instead of complaining and, and uh, you know, the matters of filthiness, foolish talk, who joking? moves people away from that. So here is the first point, the sin of immorality. We have the second point, God's warnings for the immoral in verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Here are the warning in verse 5. The first one is, the sexually immoral have no inheritance in Christ. There's only two possibilities. You are in Christ, you are trusting in him for your forgiveness of sins, that trusting in him for your forgiveness of sins also requires that you submit to him as your Lord. And if you are trusting in him, then that means that there is an inheritance in heaven awaiting you. Or the other possibility, the only other possibility, is that you are outside of Christ and God's wrath remains on you and you have no inheritance in heaven. So there's only two possibilities. Perhaps you're wondering, even as I'm talking to you about this difficult subject, well, how are sinners even saved then? Who, who, who has not had a sinful thought? Well, you're, you're telling me that we're all damned. Well, on one hand, I am saying that that's true. We are all damned. We are all justly condemned. And then you have the questions that, that, that Job and his friends are asking. How can a man be righteous before God? How can a man born of a woman be pure? And that is the hope of the gospel that he has given us. Think about a worse place. If anything worse than Ephesians, there was the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here, he's talking about the same thing. He's saying, the kingdom of God and no inheritance. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You notice that he doesn't single out any one group and says, this group is the worst and we're going to exclude only them. He doesn't say that. There's a whole list of things. There's greed, there's drunkards, there's swindlers. They're, they're on that list with all the, all the rest of them. And then he says one of, the, one of the best verses in the Bible. And such were some of you. And you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he says the warning, hey, these are the people who will not inherit eternal life. These are the people who are outside of God's blessing. And then he says to these Corinthians, such were some of you. Meaning, you gave that up. So you ask, are we all damned? We're all damned outside of Christ. Correct. We're all justly condemned. But here, he describes this very principle. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're asking that question yourself right now. How can I be justified? Well, the command is that you repent, meaning you forsake your sins. Those sins mentioned, sexual morality, homosexuality, drunkard, drunkenness, revilings, swindling. You repent of those, you forsake them, you give them up. And instead, you believe upon Jesus Christ, that you trust Jesus. My sins are washed away by your perfect sacrifice. The very righteousness that I lack, you give me, and I receive it by faith. Have you done so? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ in, in this way? You've said, I've committed all those things. But you know what? I'm going to leave it all behind. I'm going to give that up. This is what the gospel calls us to. 
here. He warns in verse five. Uh, sorry, verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So here comes this warning about empty words. Satan. Satan is quite adept at stepping in there. He takes God's plan and his laws, and he makes caricatures of them. You've seen it before, right? I mean, think for a moment why, why Winnie the Pooh is banned in China, right? These are caricatures, right? This is, what, this is what Satan is good at doing regarding God and his laws. He makes a caricature, makes an exaggeration. He ridicules God's standard. Think about how Satan came to Eve in the garden before the fall. And notice that she says, she doesn't say, she, she says, you must not eat of it. And then she adds, and you must not touch it or you will die. She added to it because in her own heart, there was this question, this doubt. God, what you've told us to do is not good. You, you've, you've held us back. She's added to God's law. This is exactly what Satan wants you to think. You know what? God's commandments, they're just out of touch with reality, right? Hey, buddy, come in, come into the year 2000, right? Stop wearing your flat, your, your, your pleated, punt, uh, pleated punt pants and, and get into reality, right? Uh, you know, your plaid, your plaid jacket, put those away. You think about how Satan works. He knows that, in particular, these sexual sins, the love for pleasure overrules the faculty of the mind and of the reason so quickly and so easily. I'll give you a simple example. We've seen this before. A church, you have children, children who are raised in the church, who have faithful parents, who taught them well, godly example. These young men, some of them I've known, and, and then... They go off to college, right? They, they profess faith in their teen years, and then they go off to college. The first turn, they come back for their winter break, and they start talking to their elders or pastor and says, you know, hey, I, all these things I've been taught as a child, I, I'm starting to question, and uh, I, I want my name removed from the church rolls. And my, a friend of mine, his, his wife, in, in those situations, she's wise enough, astute enough to say, Ask the young man one question. What is her name? And, and he, he's like, what, what, what are you talking about? And, and sure enough, this, this man, he's like, hey, what? we've seen this before. We've heard other people ask this question. Hey, I, I, I read the book of Joshua. I'm starting to doubt God's righteousness to, to tell Israel to go you know, kill off these people. Oh, what's her name? Similar situation. And you see how, how the body has a tendency to to change the thinking, the reasoning of the mind. That's something that God calls sinful, that when you're stuck in it, when you're entrenched in it, suddenly no warning that anyone gives, including from God's word, it can be reasoned away. Somehow it doesn't apply to you. You think about some of these common false arguments. Satan comes there, hey, it's okay. You can continue in that because the scriptures are not clear on the topic. Oh, really? If one verse, if two verses, two verses from the Bible are not enough, what about a hundred? What about two hundred? God is out of touch with reality. 
It's not realistic in our modern day. Oh, really? God is out of touch with reality? Let me ask you a question. Who created man's body? Who created woman's body? Who? Was it Satan? Was it man who invented sex? No, it was God. He's not out of touch with reality. He's the designer. He's the creator. You want to tell me that somehow he's out of touch with reality? No. How about this one? He comes back and says, hey, your God is a cosmic killjoy. He forbids all pleasure as sinful and damnable. He never said that at all. This is completely false. This is the over-exaggeration. God made pleasure. God is the one who gave pleasure. He put fences. He put boundaries for those pleasures for your protection. The sinful tendency is to think with these fences. It's just like a little toddler. You have, you have this fence around your swimming pool in the backyard and if there's a fence there, there must be something good on the other side. And that two or three year old is thinking, hey, I've never, I can't swim, but you know what? Something over there is fun. And you hear about these accidents, little children drowning. In the same way, we think about God's fences, his commandments. Some, something, there must be something good on the other side. You think also about the claim of exceptions applied to you. If you're such a, if you're such a person that people need to make exceptions for you all the time, there's actually something wrong with you. I'm going to tell you that right now. There's something, there's enough times, and in, in, in my elders and I, we've dealt with people, if, if they believe exceptions apply to them, there's something wrong with that person. Don't, don't be that person. God's commandments here, they all apply to you, every single one of them. They apply to me also. There's also the, the false reasoning of ends justify the means. You can think about how this would work out. The ends justify the means. Here, there's also a warning given. The sexually immoral are sons of disobedience and so are under God's wrath. Not only are they not inheritors of the kingdom of God, of, of Christ's great promises, they're also under God's wrath. You see here, he gave the warning in verse 6 earlier, let no one deceive you with empty words. And God's solution to these empty words, partly, is that he would give us stern warnings. So the warnings are there saying, hey, listen, don't you think for a moment you can have your cake and eat it too. You can live your life however you want, and somehow you can walk away with no consequences. So these warnings are there for our protection. You think about God's wrath and and human death, 1 Timothy 5, 6, speaking about uh, the young woman. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Meaning the, the widow uh, who lives for wanton pleasure refuses to submit, refuses to follow the Lord Jesus. That giving herself to wanton pleasure, she's already dead. That death describing God's judgment, his condemnation is already upon her. The only thing that she's waiting for is physical death for the, the fulfillment of that judgment. Think also of what we read earlier in Proverbs 7 about the adulterous woman. The description is the scene that her house, right? She, she lures the man and he goes to her house and her house is, is basically a graveyard. That's the description as, as you're walking there. 
and there's the house and it's dark and, and you look around and there's like dead bodies strewn everywhere. That, that's the description that we see. For many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol descending to the chambers of death. And you ask yourself, are you going to be one of those casualties? That's death. You think about this repetition of death regarding God's wrath, his judgment. You think also about about the hope that we have in Jesus and Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Here, the Apostle Paul points us to that hope. He faces death too. He's concerned about judgment, but we have true hope in Jesus who saves us from our sins. Consider how the warnings of Scripture should be with us today as we think through these verses. Number one, that you and I ought to have the humility to receive God's warnings and to heed his commandments. There is far too much at stake. Your soul, your very life, your family, your lineage, the Christian church, the testimony of Jesus Christ. There is far too much at stake. We must have the humility to heed these commandments and these warnings. They apply to you. They apply to me. Pride in the face of these warnings is your death knell. The bell that rings when someone dies. If you ever say, it can never happen to me. It can never happen to my marriage. It can never happen to my family. That is you sounding the death knell for your fall. Do not be such a person. Pride also is what causes us to believe that somehow we're above the law. When you look at any one of those scandalous situations where ministers fell, had everything to do with pride, had everything to do with someone thinking that they were above God's law. None of us is above God's law. Here, it reminds us that there ought to be great gratitude in our hearts toward God for his gracious forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Nothing in these warnings that are given indicate that sexual immorality is the unpardonable sin. Nothing that I've said says that. In fact, everything points the other way. You look at those who are... David, dearly loved of God, committed adultery. Yet he is forgiven. We're called... We're told that he was a man after God's own heart. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. There is hope for forgiveness in Jesus Christ, even from sexual sins. If you have sinned in such a way, but you have not repented, then I urge you, forsake your sins. Embrace Jesus Christ for eternal life. The reminder of the cultivation of of a healthy marriage is the first line of defense against immorality for married folks. You think about the warnings that scripture gives. If you are not on talking terms with your wife because you're arguing about something or rather, if you're not on talking terms 
you're not on conjugal love terms either. Don't do that. The warnings that are given, live with your wife in an understanding way as one who is weaker, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So that the protection that God has given for immorality, that of marriage, can be a protection. Stop depriving one another. For the single, celibacy, abstinence, that is the only biblical option for you unless the Lord should open the door for marriage. You ought to examine and be willing to examine closely and carefully your intake, what you see, what you watch, what you read. How common the addiction, not, not the usage, but the addiction to pornography is among Christians. If you have that, then establish proper protections and accountability for purity. If it means that your computer must be in a common area in the home, then so be it. If it means no internet usage after 9 p.m., so be it also. That if you really want to deal with the problem, there must be a willingness to have accountability. If you're unwilling to have that, then it means you're unwilling to deal with it. You must desire to keep chaste company. You must desire to keep chaste company. 2 Timothy 2.22 Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You want to desire people. You want to desire to be with people who would desire that you would walk closely with the Lord Jesus. Who are going to say, you know what? Brother, I am your keeper. Scripture. Is it Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Meaning that you should be around people who desire that your marriage would thrive. That your life would reflect Jesus Christ. That you would walk in holiness. That others would have a high standard for you. That, that when others question you, that you should not be offended. You should be thankful that there's someone who's watching your back. Keep chase company. Young people, be careful about long periods of unsupervised time with those people of the opposite sex. It's not a good idea. right? There should be accountability in that. There's also no shame or cowardice in fleeing sexual temptation. Consider the example of Joseph. That Potiphar's wife grabbed his garment and he left the garment and ran away. And perhaps some of you are thinking, are you willing to flee? Are are you a coward? Here, what are you really admitting? Are you admitting you're weak? I'm admitting I'm weak if I were to flee, of course. But it is better to flee in weakness and admit it than not to flee and be dead. Here, perhaps the best thing we can do when we come across temptations is that we would turn the other way and run. Here, this is also a reminder about diligence. We ought to be diligent in our spiritual duties. If there's idleness, Satan loves idleness. He loves overconfidence. He loves when... We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Spending time meditating on God's word, spending time in prayer. If you've noticed that those activities are going down in your life, in your household, then you need to watch and pray that you fall not in temptation.
here, we ought to remember yet again that our God has given us guidelines for our safety and protection. May we receive it with humility. May we receive it. May we heed him. And may we trust that his way is best, that he desires our life, he desires our joy, he desires our pleasure, and that we would understand that these fences, these barriers are here for our protection. And may we be those who build others up and desire to see them thriving in the Lord. May we go to our God together in, in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you indeed are good, that you've given us warnings. And Father, we pray that we would heed them. We pray, Father, for your people. We pray, Father, that the marriage bed would indeed be kept pure. And Father, we pray that we would desire to see your people, from the young to the very old, walking according to your truth, delighting in you. Father, we pray that we would humble ourselves, that we would trust in you. Father, that we would acknowledge...